Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. My name is Jeremy Leitnan. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. And today we're going to cover uh, five chapters of Hosea, starting with chapter three. I was looking ahead, Pastor Zarling, to uh, the next, this week and next week are going to be a whole lot of Hosea. That's a whole lot of Hosea. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And uh, the first chapter here is a nice short one. Of course, the, this might be a good time to talk about how the verses and chapters of the Bible are not divinely inspired. Um, it, it was, I've, I've always heard it was some monk in the Middle Ages who went and uh, organized all the chapters and verses. That might not be right. But the point is, it wasn't God. That, I, I heard that he was doing that, but it was on... I was riding a donkey, and every time he hit a bump, that's another chapter, and that's why sometimes the chapters are broken up where they shouldn't be. Yeah, and you're going to find it when it comes to uh, chapter uh, 6 into 7, I think, that it looks like that's right in the middle of a sentence he divided the chapter. So that's probably not too far from the truth in what you said. Um, Chapter 3 is uh, picking it right up where we left off last week, uh, dealing with the... uh, an unfaithful wife that Hosea, God told Hosea to marry. He wanted Hosea to be a preacher of his word for his people. And uh, one thing that preachers do sometimes is use object lessons. And uh, in this case, Hosea's own family was the object lesson. Right. The object lesson is that Hosea needs to marry this woman who is going to be unfaithful to him, whether she was a prostitute beforehand or became a prostitute while she was married. The idea is she is going to be unfaithful. And I was thinking about that because Pastor Lane and I have a, a long week, uh, a long weekend that tomorrow I have a Jesus Cares worship service in the morning with special needs. And then in the evening, it's a wedding rehearsal. And then on Sunday, it is three worship services and then a wedding at two o'clock. And then next week is a funeral. And, and then your son and 14 other students are being confirmed. So it's a long week, and before I ever feel sorry for myself, then I remember, oh, but at least I wasn't Jeremiah that was thrown into a well, or Isaiah who was told, hey, just keep on preaching for decades, but they're not going to listen to you, or go marry a prostitute. Yeah. Uh, God has asked big things of his uh, preachers and prophets of the past, and uh, so even when when you've got uh, my... Big uh, sob story is one time I had uh, three funerals on Monday, Wednesday, and Tuesday, the week before Christmas. There you go. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, I never had to, like Ezekiel, uh, lie on my side for a month and then lie on the other side for another month. I forget exactly how that went, but God asked some pretty drastic things of them long ago. But the key is, Pastor Lightning, what... Is God trying to illustrate with this object lesson of Hosea marrying and staying married to this unfaithful woman? Well, it's that his people are his bride. And you see this also in the New Testament, that uh, Christ's bride is the church. But even in the Old Testament, God speaks in marital terms about his people. He wants to be wedded to them. And, And maybe if you've ever had the I mean, many of you may have gone through the small catechism and you know that passage we had to memorize. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
And that's maybe a good way to think of it as we go into Ezekiel here. That's what jealous means. It's not an un, it's not an unholy jealousy of coveting or anything like that. It's a, a jealousy of a husband who has strong feelings for his wife and who is rightfully indignant and angry to find out that his wife has been unfaithful to him. That's how God felt toward his people, and that's what chapter 3 illustrates for us. Yeah, the whole key is God is a husband, like you said, calling his wife Israel back to him away from their adulterous and idolatrous lifestyle. Uh, I kind of wondered if maybe there was some kind of... uh, yeah, you hate to say it, but it's it's the case. And when we're talking adultery and prostitution, it kind of seems like there was some sort of pimp relationship that had developed with um, Hosea's wife and whoever it was that possessed her, uh, because it said he had to, uh, for 15 pieces of silver and nine bushels of barley, he had to uh, buy her, purchase her from, from somebody. Uh, I don't... I don't have a whole lot of insight on what that means, but it does seem like there was something along those lines going on. Right. Anything else on chapter three? Uh, I suppose not. Okay. Chapter four. So this section reviews some of the sins of the Northern kingdom in the form of charges leveled against the people. Uh, But Hosea is leveling these charges specifically against the leadership of Israel, that they have the greater guilt. So in this chapter, we see that the priests and the people are well suited for each other. The priests do not want to tell the truth and the people don't want to hear the truth. So what charges did the Lord bring against the Israelites? He says they're unfaithful to one another. They're unfaithful to himself as God. They cursed, lied, murdered, stole, committed adultery, and constantly pushed the boundaries of their wickedness. You caught me right as I was glancing at uh, the verses all about uh, bringing charges against a priest. And as I read through that earlier, it was kind of making me think of um, bringing charges against uh, the modern Catholic concept of priest. And uh, but that's not the right way to to think about it. Uh, quite that uh, the ancient Israelite priesthood would be a much different thing than uh, the modern Cath- uh, Roman Catholic priesthood. Uh, but it it seems to mean something like uh, you you won't get anywhere with these people trying to accuse them. Uh, just like you wouldn't you wouldn't get anywhere uh, trying to find wrongdoing in a priest, either that he knows how to talk his way out of it or, uh, or everybody's doing it so much that they might be, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you, if you had any thoughts on that or if you just wanted to move on. Yeah, I didn't have any thoughts necessarily on the priest, but verse two made me think of things that are going on in our culture right now. In our nation, there is n- cursing, lying, murder, theft, and adultery. They break out in violence, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the Lord mourns, and everyone who dwells in it wastes away. Uh, and I thought of the protesting and rioting, the breaking out of violence and bloodshed in our streets. But I agree with Jose, and that's a good place to agree with, is when he uh, says that our leaders, they bear 
a greater responsibility. Just think of the events of this week and uh, the weeks prior that you learned about Congresswoman Maxine Waters, that she was on video calling for rioters to be more physical and confrontational if uh, the officer was acquitted in Minneapolis. I read in the Oregonian, a news outlet, obviously in Oregon, that tweeted that uh, the police there had killed a man. But then they tweeted afterwards, oh, don't worry about it. It was a white man. Don't riot. Okay, that's not doing anything to solve the riot, the race issues in our nation. Or on the other side of the aisle, thinking of the governors in South Dakota and Alabama that don't stand up against big business or the NCAA by protecting women's rights when they uh, veto bills to protect uh, the, the women. And, and then the same thing when pastors, when pastors remain silent and don't teach people to speak up and apply law and gospel sin and grace to our culture. Then the words of Hosea about our government and church leaders find us guilty because we're just like Israel's leaders. I was reminded of our culture also uh, when reading verse 10, um, they will eat but not be satisfied. They will engage in sexual immorality but not increase. Um, It kind of made me think about uh, if you have gone through having actually having uh, COVID or coronavirus. Um, you know, you notice how you lose your sense of taste, or at least that's one of the symptoms for some people. And uh, yet we do that even without uh, having the disease. Um, when you when you just fill your fill your life up with uh, whatever cravings you have as fast as possible, after a while they stop bringing you pleasure, don't they? And that's that's also true with, with food and with things that you taste. But then, especially uh, like what you were talking about in, in our society today, engaging in sexual immorality but not increasing, that is uh, an interesting thought to pursue in this day and age where, like you said, sexual promiscuity is through the roof and yet um, fertility is uh, lower and, and, and lower than ever uh, with each passing decade. Um, and that's really what God designed sexuality to be for, is for increasing, is for uh, fertility and for the population of the species. And then Hosea is telling us that we need to learn from this, uh, that we need to learn from what's going on in our nation but we need to learn the example that happened in Israel 2,700 years ago, uh, that we should learn from this sad history and not follow in its footsteps. I'm also reminded just with this chapter, you know, you, you're reading the Bible and then it, this is God's word and it's holy and, and you're letting your eyes scan across it and suddenly you see they behave like a whore <laughs> instead of following their God. And, and it kind of makes me think, um, you know, there's something to it when people say that uh, Christians shouldn't be prudes. Uh, we should certainly practice modesty, and we should certainly not, you know, go for shock value and things like that. Uh, and at the same time, let's when when we need to be blunt, God's word is very blunt. Yeah, we don't need to be crude, uh, but it's very important for us. I need to make sure that I do this in my preaching and teaching is it's very easy to point out the sins in our culture. Look at them and then feel good about ourselves. 
But the key is with all of scripture is where do we see ourselves in this? And we need to see ourselves is even though we may not be promiscuous like the Israelites or other people in our, people in our culture, if we're not speaking up against it, and at least not if we're not saying anything to our children about it, uh, then we can be guilty about this sin as well. I really like verse 14. And in fact, I think I might share it with some of my students who are afraid that, or they often would think that uh, the Bible is kind of chauvinistic and uh, misogynistic. Um, God actually says, I will not punish your daughters when they commit fornication or, or your brides when they commit adultery, because the men consort with prostitutes and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. Um, you, you see that today, too, where uh, you know, men are like, why, why can't we have uh, women like we had back in the good old days of, you know, th- that they, that they were homebodies or, or that they were uh, uh, faithful at, at, at their tasks around the house. And uh, yet the men held themselves to a different standard and, uh, you know, went, went to the strip club or, or would uh, engage in prostitution. Still today you find this. And uh, it wasn't much different back in Hosea's time either. Uh, anything else you want to bring up on this chapter? I guess not. Okay. Chapter five. Now, uh, if uh, chapter four wasn't bad enough in calling the priests and the government leaders to account, Hosea adds in verse two, some more people to his roll call. As he talks about the rebels sink deeper in a slaughter, but I will di- discipline them. Here he's talking about the royal household. And calling them rebels is a fitting name for the kings of Israel during Hosea's time. And then uh, going on and looking at verse 10, the officials of Judah are like people who move a boundary stone. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. So what he's talking about there is... Uh, You'd have your fields and you would have a stone, a big heavy stone that would be your field marker. You know, today we might have the, the fences that separate one person's property from another. But what they were doing was they were picking up these field stones and they were moving them so that you can now say, I have more property. They're cheating by the standards. And just in applying that, I was thinking about how people talk today about uh, everything having to do with this virus of moving the goalposts, you moving the boundaries. You remember uh, a year ago we were told, what, 15 days to flatten the curve. And now, a year later, our government leaders are saying there need to be shots, masks, uh, vaccine passports, distancing, lockdowns, and more. I watched uh, Dr. Fauci in front of one of our congressmen uh, that he would not he give a direct answer on you know numbers or dates of when everything can go back to normal. Or I read about how Michigan is requiring two-year-olds to wear masks. Uh, Oregon is actually making looking to make it a law that uh, is mandatory uh, and with no end in sight of people having to wear masks. Or I saw a video from across the pond in England of police actually breaking down a door and arresting a man for no other reason than because he was outside when everything was locked down. And 
And people get frustrated because, and they stop paying attention to the rulers, their government officials, because of what? They're moving the goalposts, or in Hosea's term, they're moving the boundary stones. And then what happens? There's no confidence in, in the government officials, in your royals in Hosea's time. This is really what words are. Uh, uh, another good way to think of these boundary stones is like words um, and how people can so easily uh, morph and redefine them and uh, uh, try and take them and, and twist them to, to mean whole, whole new things that they didn't mean before. Um, I, I don't know if, if you could think of like, yeah, the, the old standby is the word gay. But uh, uh, things, yeah, I, I guess I don't have a good example off the top of my head, but uh, words are really boundary stones. And you certainly see a lot of that with um, uh, pandemic issues as well. Yeah, everything, everything changes. And when everything changes, then uh, people get frustrated, they get lost, and then they strike out in fear or anger, or they just shrink in unto themselves and and this all goes back to that whole idea of people cheating each other because they move the stones. You, you expect this is where my property line ends and this is where yours begins. And then all of a sudden you find that yeah, that has changed. And who, wait a minute, who changed that? That That's not right. I like how this uh, chapter, it kind of ties into what you were saying before about um, let's not just point the finger at uh, ugly, dirty Hollywood and all of their uh, evil doings as celebrities. Uh, he starts the chapter with, hear this, you priests. Uh, let, let's start at the top uh, of, of God's family uh, with those who are in charge of other people's souls and uh, make sure that they have the right message, that they're applying it to themselves uh, above all else. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you and I as pastors, our teachers, uh, but also government leaders, they have a greater responsibility and they're called to account much more than other people. Yeah, listen, O house of the king. There's your, there's your government leaders. Right, exactly. Uh, verse 12, you know, Hosea uses good, good picture language like you mentioned before. Uh, God says, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. Ephraim is another name for Israel. Uh, so what does it mean that God is a moth to Ephraim and a rot to Judah? He's saying that both consume slowly. God would strip the territories from both kingdoms piece by piece. And that's what happens when households pull away from God and his word. That when our families are slowly being consumed by the culture, the nation follows. So a good question, I'll ask you, Pastor Lightning, is the rot in our families contributing to the rot in our culture or is the rot in our culture contributing to the rot in our families? I'll answer your question with another question. What, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, well, the chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's, true. Yeah, that's true. I'm a creationist, so I'm going to that, say the chicken. That's true. You are, you are correct. Um, so, uh, well, now which one is the chicken and which one is the egg in this analogy, the family or the um, culture? Well, the answer I wrote down for myself is... It's both, right? It's a cycle. Yeah, yeah. It, but but they, the first thing that we had, if you go to creation, creationist is the family. Yeah. That's the... Wait, wait, what did you just say? The, the culture or the family, and where is the And your rot, answer is... is? Is it's both. It's a cycle. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and the reason I'm, I'm saying that is 
again, we look at what's going on in our culture. I, I harp all the time when my classes on, you know, what the students are watching, what they're listening to, you know, the TikTok videos and so forth. And parents can be, you know, you and I have teenagers, you know, we can be blissfully ignorant. We don't want to know what they're listening to and watching and talking about and so forth. And yet, because that's, and then we can just condemn the culture. But we have to take care of what's in our family and not let the culture in. And then also what happens when our, our own families are disintegrating. We're not sitting down for devotions. We're not sitting down even just to have dinner together. And our families are torn apart. And, uh, you know, I, I look at some of the families that I minister to, you know, where they've got a number of children, which is fantastic. But these children all have different last names. Hmm. Was that from the culture? Or is that the family? It's a both and. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I would still like to take it back to creation, uh, just because uh, look at what happened with uh, Cain and Abel. There was there was no surrounding culture. The culture was the family. The family was the culture, and yet there was still this uh, this horrendous evil inside of uh, Cain and Abel. But uh, Cain let his show itself. Um, and uh, you, you can't really pin it on one without pinning it, pinning it on the other. And then in verse verses 14 and 15, God describes himself now like a lion. He says, because I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear him to pieces. I will carry them off and there will be no one who can rescue them. Uh so here he's describing himself as a ferocious lion, a frightening picture. Uh, and there I saw, I, I think people probably just think I just watch videos all day long, but I, I, I have my coffee and I read a lot of news stories and so forth. But the last few weeks I saw a video, because we're going to be going out to the uh, Smoky Mountains soon for vacation, and I saw a video of a guy in his Airbnb taking uh a black bear had come onto the porch and crawled into the hot tub and was sitting, mm-hmm. warming himself in the hot tub. And then I saw a video yesterday of two couples sitting at a picnic bench and a black bear was sitting at the bench. They made him a sandwich and he's sitting there. Those two bears may seem kind of friendly, you know, get in the hot tub with them. Mm-hmm. The guy didn't or sitting and they were actually right up close, uh, patting him and taking selfies with him and so forth. But, very quickly, that bear can turn on you. Yeah. God is talking here about a lion, you know, same kind of ferocious animal, and uh, he can tear his people apart. But uh, the whole idea is he's trying to turn them back to him again. Uh, as they're being mauled by the lion, God says, what's going to happen? They're going to cry out to him for help. That's his main goal. That is a call to repentance. You can see a real contrast. Uh, it made me think when you said, uh, based on verse 12, that this would be a slow decay or a slow rot. There's the moth eating or, or slowly dis- disintegrating a piece of clothing, uh, and, and that's in verse 12. And it's kind of like God says, I can do both. I, I can do either one. W- w- I can punish you either way you want. I can, we can do this slowly and uh, piecemeal, painfully that way, or we can do it very rapidly and drastically like a, a young lion tearing, tearing a victim apart. Um, 
Either way, uh, he ends the chapter by saying, I will go, I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, they will earnestly seek me. And, and that's the goal, is even though that slow rot or quickly being mauled, the key is God wants them to admit their guilt, it's repentance, and then seek his face, call upon me in the day of trouble. Again, we need to apply that to ourselves. The distress has a, a purpose behind it. He causes distress, but uh, he does that because he wants uh, a change of heart. Uh, so that will lead in nicely to chapter 6 and uh, the things that the people then say in chapter 6. Um, this is a section that I, I know has often been appointed for Good Friday, uh, at least at the church that I served, sometimes we would have it as an Old Testament reading on Good Friday. Um, but uh, what is what has been your experience? It's a little bit more familiar section. Hosea is, is by and large not that familiar to most people, but if there is a part that's familiar, uh, it's usually going to be chapter 6. Yeah, with later on when he's calling them, uh, you know, he's, Jesus quotes this verse, uh, about the Pharisees and so forth. Uh, verse 3, he says, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us pursue knowledge of the Lord. As surely as the sun rises, the Lord will appear. He will come to us like heavy rain, uh, like the spring rain that waters the earth. Uh, and that sounds such a beautiful confession, doesn't it? And who's speaking it? Well, it's probably... Uh, the prophet speaking on behalf of the few faithful people that remain in the Lord. Uh, but the Lord's reaction in verse 4 suggests that this is a superficial confession of the impenitent Israelites. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim, God says? What am I going to do with you, Judah? For your faithfulness is like a morning mist, like early dew that disappears. It's uh, not going to last real long. And there I liken it to uh, our previous principal telling me a story about, you know, some eighth graders that got in trouble on the bus a few years ago. So what did he do? He called them each into his office and then spoke to them individually and let them, whether incriminate themselves or and repent or just, uh, you know, basically lie about it and say, well, nothing happened. And, you know, he, he let them go out there and, and talk. Then later on, he would say, you know what? I have these uh, witnesses that have said this. I have the bus driver's witness, and I have video proof. And they're, oh, oh, now we're really in trouble. And now they might say they're sorry, but are they really sorry? Okay. Uh, he knows that they were punks before, and they're going to be punks afterwards. Uh, and they weren't really sorry. They're just sorry they got caught. And that's what uh, I think is going on in chapter or verse 3 here is the people feel they're getting caught by God, whether the slow rot and moth or being torn apart, torn apart by a lion. Uh, and so they got to confess. They're not sorry that they did anything wrong. They're just sorry that they have to be torn apart or slowly rotted. Yeah. Um, it, what you notice, even if you just look at their words, as beautiful as the words sound, they never actually say anything about having done anything wrong uh, in, in verses one through three. Uh, it said, you know, let us return to the Lord. He, he'll be nice to us again. 
he'll he'll take us back again. Uh, on the third day, he will raise us up. Um, maybe you do have a little hint there about the resurrection of Christ, but uh, still, even even if you didn't have the Holy Spirit telling you that uh, in verses four through six or seven that that this was kind of a superficial apology, there there's not even really an apology. It it's just saying, let us acknowledge the Lord, let us pursue knowledge of the Lord. And uh, and he'll come he'll come back to us he'll take us back and uh, I I preached a sermon on this once uh, and actually it was it was a, a German service that I was leading and I talked about addiction and one of the things that I said you know you might be get addiction to sugar you could get addicted to uh, gambling or or uh, lots of different things. But uh, here we kind of have God describing his people as being addicted to sinning. So then in verse 6, I think, is the key verse. And then Jesus quotes it uh, in Matthew 9 and chapter 12. And he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what is he talking about there, Pastor Leighton? And since you, you referenced that this is used for Good Friday and so forth. Uh, simply that... Um, you know, it was a while ago you actually mentioned uh, Jordan Peterson on this podcast and how he had become a Christian. Well, I've been listening to a lot of his lectures, and one of the things that he talks about a lot before he would have now become a Christian is um, it, he was very interested in, in studying the Bible, and he thought that these things were just fascinating, but uh, didn't really think that the world was made in six days and that a worldwide flood had happened and that kind of thing. But the one thing he did get out of it is sacrifice. And he, as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist, he likes to uh, talk about how it is so important to make sacrifices. And you have to sacrifice now so that you'll have a happier outcome later. Uh, everybody wants instant gratification. Well, what he's saying, what Hosea is, is saying, the Lord is saying through Hosea here, is um, that's actually not what makes my relationship with you. It's not about how good of sacrifices you can make or whether you sacrifice the right things. Um, this was actually, he. I was just listening to him talk about Cain and Abel, and he was talking about, this is Jordan Peterson, talking as an unbeliever, talking about how, well, Cain didn't make the right kind of sacrifice, and that's what got God angry at him. And that's a misunderstanding. That's that's going against what the Lord says here about Hosea. Um, uh, and I don't mean to badmouth Jordan Peterson because uh, I really enjoy listening to him uh, even even before he came to Christian faith. But um, this is this is what God is saying. It's not about how well or perfectly you make sacrifices in your life. It's about God's mercy, uh, forgiving your sins in Jesus. And when Jesus quotes this verse those two times, he's speaking directly to the Pharisees because they did not desire mercy. They did not, uh, you know, they just wanted to give the sacrifice. They were very proud of what they were doing, you know, sacrificing a tenth of their spices even and so forth. Well, and they were talking about the tax collectors and they were saying this to them. In other words, uh, 
I get the impression Jesus was saying, you want these sac- you want these tax collectors to make some sacrifices before I will show mercy to them or before God will forgive their sins. They have to sacrifice first. God actually says, no, I, I give mercy first, and that's much more important to me than these tax collectors sacrif- making sacrifices of uh, repentance. Right. So how does the rest of the chapter show that God was not finding what he sought in the Israelites. Uh, the rest of the chapter goes on after that verse to talk about how the Israelites spoke good-sounding words, but they continued in their detestable practices. He talks about bloody footprints and a city of evildoers. Uh, they, uh, they've got all these gangs of robbers. Uh, people are committing murder, shameful crimes, sexual immorality, and so forth. So, it's just nice flowery words, but not followed up by by the sacrifice and mercy of giving themselves over to the Lord so he can give mercy to them. You get that picture also of uh, verse 5, that God's word is like a sword. Uh, the sword of the spirit is what Paul calls it. And uh, that sword cuts both ways. Uh, it says, I killed them with the words of my mouth. Uh, I cut them to pieces by means of the prophets. Um, and I guess if we're just wrapping up chapter 6, I wanted to add that uh, that former principal of yours sounds like a really rotten guy. I'm <laughs> glad I didn't have him as a teacher when I was growing up. That's right. Uh, oh, that's probably I'm good. suspecting that this is the same principal that was the principal of the church where I was a vicar. Is that is that the it case? Very well, could be. And okay. Yeah. Uh, and so then, he knows if he's listening that I'm only kidding. Uh, chapter seven. Uh, how was the hardness of Israel's heart evident in the in the first few verses? Uh, Hosea says crimes not only occurred but were tolerated by the king and the princes. In fact, they appear to have taken pleasure in Israel's wickedness. Verse 3, the people of Ephraim, Israel, uh, make the king glad with their wickedness. They make their officials happy with their lies. So as corrupt priests and corrupt worshipers enabled and supported each other's sins in the spiritual realm, so corrupt kings and corrupt subjects enable each other's sins in the political realm. They are allied in sin. At the end, they're going to devour each other. Uh, And I I talked about this in Bible study today that you hear a lot about systemic racism in our nation. But what happens is our government leaders stoke the flames by calling for reparations or judging police actions before the body cam footage is viewed. Uh, But the key is yelling about it encouraging rioting about it, acting racist to fight racism. It doesn't work. It never works. Uh, It just makes it worse. And our spiritual and government leaders are contributing to the sins of people. They are uh, allying themselves with the sin and people are devouring each other. So what's needed is uh, what was needed 2,700 years ago in Israel. The people need to repent. Our Government leaders need to repent. Our spiritual leaders need to repent. They need to call others to repent. And we need to repent. Only repentance and forgiveness heals what divides us. 
it's especially striking when you see that uh, picture in verse four of the oven. And uh, if that's if that's our our sinful desires, that's that's kind of the analogy I think here is like an oven, um, and that uh, the prophet says the baker does not even need to stoke the fire. He he doesn't the the oven doesn't need to preheat. You could say um, it, it's already hot enough. That that's that's how uh, sinful it, things had become internally in in their own hearts. Uh, that uh, they were they were ready at the drop of a hat to uh, jump into any kind of immorality that you can imagine. And then with that same imagery, verse eight, Ephraim is a flatbed not turned over. So he's saying there's they're burned where the damage isn't seen. Their half baked ideas leave them scorched on one side and raw on the other, or like my wife and daughters would say, like my my toast. You know that every time I use. I use a toaster to make toast. That's not toast, Dad. That's warmed bread, which is the way I like it. Because I don't want it to be, it's like a bad toaster. You know, burning it on one side and cold on the other, mine's just gently warmed. That's how, that's, in uh, Europe, they, they would say what yours is, is toast. And what Americans normally do is is burnt. I think it's burnt too, burnt bread. That's that's how they described it over there. Um, I, I kind of, took it a little personally, uh, maybe rightfully so. Uh, uh, strangers have devoured his strength. Now, who's the his that we're talking about there? Um, that would be Ephraim. Uh, that would be the, the political leaders of Israel. And uh, it says, strangers have devoured his strength in verse 9. He does not realize it. There are gray hairs on his head, but he does not realize it. And Ever since I started teaching high school, the, my number of uh, gray hairs has at least doubled. Um, so, uh, but I'm hoping this isn't talking about me because I realize it. See, <laughs> I, I'm talking about it right now. So, um. uh, then look at uh, verse 11. Uh, Hosea is talking about all around Israel, nations grow stronger by forming alliances, all to their mutual interests. Because what's happening here throughout history is that uh, Israel and Judah, they would go from one alliance to another. First, they uh, sought Assyrian help against Aram. Then they sought Egyptian help against their recent ally, Assyria. Then they're going to work another deal with Assyria. And God's people were commanded to not be like these other nations who trust their military might. Uh, God is getting on their case because they have not returned to the Lord their God. He says that they were to trust the Lord for their strength, not their own or other nations' military strength. I'm just noticing now in chapter 7 at the end of the chapter that, uh, again, so many reminders, like you've been saying all along, of our modern culture. The last verse says, Their officials will fall by the sword because of their angry tongues. And and I think... uh, Without taking too many sides, politically speaking, uh, you'd have to say there are a lot of angry tongues uh, (laughs) among our our political leaders, and they they need to watch out because uh, this is what God has promised for his ancient people, and uh, we could certainly be looking at something similar for uh, our our country and our national leaders as well. 
Yeah, because he says in verse 14, they do not cry out to me with their hearts, but they howl on their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine. They turn away from me. Uh, when we refuse to see our sin, then we have no need for our Savior. But still, that's the key, even though there's been a lot of law in these last five chapters, still what continues to be God's attitude toward Israel, uh, he says in verse 13, uh, I want to redeem them. I want to redeem them. But they speak lies against me. But that one little phrase, uh, I want to redeem them. God desires to save them. To that, I would just add the thing that strikes me also in the closing verses of this chapter are how much that I see reminders of other words I've heard the Lord speak in other Old Testament prophets. Um, most recently, with uh, verse 16, they return, but not upward. Well, that kind of remind, that's kind of an echo of chapter six, return to the Lord. Um, again, sort of pointing out that it's a hypocritical returning, but there is this turning that you can do, this uh, repenting. And then uh, the other reminder I got was in verse 14, that pairing up of grain and new wine. That one pops up all the time, doesn't it? Uh, that uh, And in a lot of cases, here it's a negative thing, that people are just wanting to stuff their faces with good food and, and get drunk on new wine. Uh, but uh, And that's not a good thing here. But there are other times that God has talked about uh, blessing his people with those gifts. And, and that's uh, uh, maybe a foreshadowing of, of the promise of forgiveness for those who repent. Anything else you want to say to wrap this up? I think I'm finished. Right. Just for our listeners, I thought it was kind of funny because as we were preparing for this, both Pastor Lightning and I agreed, oh, we didn't have a whole lot to talk about, and then we found a lot to talk about, which is good. Uh, so we'll spend another week with a prophet, Hosea. This is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Struck by Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>